Hollywood seems to find stories of obsessive love very romantic. Breakups often aren't taken well, and the stalking starts. What concerns me are the movies where obsessive love wins the day, like in The Notebook. Now I know, don't come after me, Old Allie and Old Noah are amazing. But young Noah was crazy aggressive in his pursuit of Allie. And what about Edward from Twilight? I mean, showing up unannounced and then even watching Bella sleep is just creepy. What would we do about those situations if they were in our own lives? Hello and welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. I'm glad you've joined me for another compelling true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you're listening to me, I really believe that you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. This is Season 4, Episode 3. The book I chose this week was in honor of National Stalking Awareness Month. And it is Stalkers, True Tales of Deadly Obsessions. And our guest is Kara Werner. Kara is a temporarily licensed counselor working toward licensure as an LPC MHSP in Tennessee. She is doing fascinating research on stalkers. And we'll check back in with her after we investigate a couple of stories from this fascinating book. Hollywood was being good to 18-year-old Rebecca Schaefer back in the mid-80s. She had landed a big role in a new TV sitcom with veteran actress Pam Dauber. Seventeen Magazine had even put her on their cover. She was even starting to receive fan mail. It was all very exciting and seemed to promise her a very bright future. What she didn't know was that one of her letter writers was a disturbed man named Robert Bardo. He watched her show and checked magazines for mention of her, or better still, pictures. His favorite picture was the one she had signed in response to one of the letters he'd sent her. She wasn't aware that he wrote letters that he didn't send her. Letters that even his twisted mind knew went too far. Robert talked about Rebecca constantly, which should have been a giant red flag to anyone around him that he desperately needed help. He traveled to L.A. and tried to visit Rebecca at the studio where her show was filmed, but security turned him away. He went home and tried calling Rebecca, but the studio wouldn't put his calls through to her. He decided to return to L.A., this time with a knife in his backpack. Security at the studio turned him away again and told him not to come back. It's unclear if anybody told Rebecca about Robert Bardo. She soon accepted a role in a new film that had her portraying a character that was a lot edgier than her sweet TV character. Bardo felt betrayed and decided that Rebecca needed to be punished. He hired a private investigator to find her home address. FYI, I always turn down any kind of request that seems like someone is asking to locate someone that they really have no business locating. Because Bardo was only 19, he needed his older brother's help to buy a gun. So here's a tip for you. Don't agree to be what's called a straw buyer for someone who has no business owning a gun. Robert even wrote his sister a letter telling her very plainly, if he couldn't have Rebecca, no one could. That is such a big red flag, but it just doesn't appear that she warned anyone at all. Robert went back to L.A. as Rebecca was waiting for a script to be sent to her apartment. When her security buzzer buzzed, she assumed it was someone delivering that script. Her intercom was broken, so she had to go to her building's gate. And there was Robert. 
Recognizing that he was a fan by the way he clutched a publicity photo of hers, she greeted him politely but asked him not to return and went back to her apartment. Bardo went to a cafe to sort out what his next move should be. He ultimately decided to go back to her apartment. This time, he shot Rebecca in the chest, ending her promising career and her life. When Bardo's sister heard on the news about Rebecca's death, she finally contacted authorities. It's very hard not to wonder how things might have been different if she'd been a little more proactive. Stars watch out for these obsessive fans much more carefully now. But what about when you're being stalked by someone much closer to you? Michelle Hadley was not happy when her relationship with Ian Diaz fell apart. She began to blow up his email, wanting to know what they were going to do about the condo they had shared. Soon she started adding in scriptures, warning him that he would suffer for having broken up with her. Ian, who was a law enforcement officer, got an order of protection against Michelle and tried to move on with his life. He began dating again and soon was a married man expecting twins with his new wife. Michelle, predictably, did not react well to this news. The emails began again, and this time they were coming from a host of different email addresses. Some were to Ian, but some were now being sent to his new wife, Angela. At least one threatened violence against their children, and others warned Angela that she needed to be punished. Now it was Angela's turn to apply for a restraining order. That order just seemed to make Michelle even more aggressive. She placed a Craigslist ad saying she wanted a man to participate in a rape fantasy with her and detailed that he shouldn't stop even if she fought back. That idea is just so disturbing. But set your coffee down and hold on. The address and picture that Michelle provided were Angela's. Did you see that coming? The title of this episode asked if stalkers were looking for love in very inappropriate ways or if they were just out for revenge. I think stalkers themselves would claim love, even when confronted with their hate-filled communications with their victims. And we can clearly see in these two stories that their actions were telling an entirely different story. But the shocking twist that we just saw was followed quickly by another. Michelle claimed that Ian actually stalked her, and he'd set up all of this to get back at her when she ended their relationship. Incredibly, Ian then claimed that Angela had framed Michelle, and he was right. Ian learned that Angela had faked her pregnancy, the pregnancy that had hastened their dating relationship into a marriage. Then authorities discovered that Angela had done something similar before. Criminal cases and civil suits are still trying to be sorted out in this bizarre story. But can we ever sort out what's going on with a stalker before they wreak the kind of chaos and havoc we saw in these two stories? Today's guest, Kara Werner, wants to try. Let's get her take on helping people who are victims of stalking and learning to head off stalking before it happens, if we can. Kara, I want to thank you so very much for joining us because I think you've got a very unique angle that you're looking at this situation. So I think we can learn so much from you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Let's just dive in with kind of a high-level view. People know what stalking is for the most part, and you're looking at it from the eyes of the stalker and trying to learn more mm -hmm. about them. So tell us kind of how that came about and where you're going with your research. Sure. So I actually have only known other people to be mildly stalked in terms of it didn't escalate into needing to become a legal issue. I myself have never had experience with that. 
But interestingly enough, I was watching a Netflix show about stalking and I really started thinking we are finally hearing from perpetrators of intimate partner violence, their perspectives. And what was really interesting about the show I watched, it really focuses on how victimized the perpetrator feels by the victim setting boundaries. And I was like, that is so interesting. Ooh, it is. We, we focus so much in the mental health world of how to help victims in a majority of situations. But my research and hopefully with my dissertation that'll be coming in a few years is how do we help victims by getting to the source of the problem, not just the reactivity, but really being proactive in helping perpetrators to understand, to respect boundaries, when people don't want to be a partner with you anymore, how to accept that and to move on instead of harassment, violence, stalking. So that show really actually was the catalyst. Netflix um, to the rescue. Netflix to the rescue. There's a lot in the world of Netflix that's really a trash can, but there's some things on there that are really thought provoking. And I like the documentary type style. It's the actual person who did the perpetrating. The victim is there. Obviously, they're separate. But that was so interesting for me. And I had just started my doctoral program. And I was like, why aren't we doing more for victims on the front end by preventing, hopefully in some capacity, with the perpetrators versus afterwards when the damage and trauma have really been done if they're alive to even talk about it? I think sometimes that we think about stalking being that person that is just kind of in the periphery of our life. Maybe we don't even know them and they fixate on a famous person or we've had one or two encounters with them that seemed extremely meaningful to them and not to us. But you mentioned the whole angle of the domestic violence component to this. So I want to talk a little bit more about that and ask you what you've learned in the research you've done so far that maybe surprised you about that. I think before really digging into this, I would have thought stalking was more of a random event. And actually what I've been finding is you're rarely stalked by a stranger. It does happen. It's not impossible. But we're talking single digit percentages compared to former partners, friends, family members. These are people that you're familiar with, that know you, that know vulnerable information about you. That's a very high percentage that it, it's going to be someone you know. That's so interesting because we find that in all kinds of crimes. And I think that it makes us so uncomfortable that we want to pretend that it is that random stranger. You know, we teach our kids stranger danger, and I'm not really saying fun. don't teach them that, but Sadly, we have to teach them and take this lesson for ourselves that the people around you can often be the most hurtful. And so what kind of red flags should people be looking for in relationships? Like you said, when boundaries are set and people won't respect them, how do we keep ourselves from just overlooking or excusing those things? That's really a very diverse question because depending on people's own childhoods, they may not know a thing about boundaries and how that's okay. Typically with a person that's going into a romantic partnership or a friendship, whatever that looks like, people respecting no, not expecting a description as to why I'm saying no, but just respecting, hey, that makes me uncomfortable. I really don't want to do that. Having someone that can respect that versus someone that's going to continue to push and push into what makes them happy and what makes you uncomfortable. 
I would say too, do they have close friends? Do they have relationships that have been around for a while? Do they tend to float between friendship groups? Is there any permanence from a childhood relationship? I think that foundation and relationships is really important to look for. Now, I say that obviously with a grain of salt, some people can't help if they don't have those connections, right? Some people have to cut off toxic family members, but it's just good to know that that would be something typically to look for, but obviously they may have a different story and it could explain some of why they may not have a true foundation into healthy family relationships, healthy boundaries, or that they may have to take time to learn that versus not understanding it at all. Finding their value and their worth in a romantic partner or a friend is really dangerous territory. Are they calling and texting you constantly? Are they harassing you when you're not texting back? All of those are really important red flags to look for when you're starting a friendship or a relationship with someone. And then how they talk to you. Are they blaming you for things that you're doing that they're hurtful to them or that they're really reacting to those things when they seem like very normal boundaries? So if I'm not calling you while I'm at work, how could you do this to me? I'm so upset, you know, blaming you for having normal boundaries. Since you've already brought up Netflix, let's just dive in. <laughs> to the media's influence on these kind of situations because we see a lot of movies, rom-coms, maybe TV shows, or like you said, the documentaries show how this can happen where someone's told no, and to them, if I can really prove my love to you, if I can continue to woo you, even though you've told me you have no interest in me, then eventually you will see how deep and powerful and true my love is and you'll be mine. Do you think yeah. that, that that stuff out in the, the media is influencing how young men especially view dating relationships? I think it definitely can. And I think it also can teach the person receiving it like, oh, they're really committed. Like maybe I should be giving this person a chance, even though X, Y, or Z made me really uncomfortable. Like they're really committed. They like me. Maybe this is the first time they've experienced someone liking them. And maybe I'm just confused. Maybe I don't know what love actually is. So I'd say it has a whole lot to do with it. And that's interesting you mentioned that because there was an article from a couple classes I took ago that the law enforcement's view on stalking actually can come from the relationship that the perpetrator has with the victim. So it tended to be that if they had dated or had, you know, gone on a few dates and the person wasn't really feeling it and decided to end things, Law enforcement really viewed that as this person's just trying to win you back. You don't need to be worried about this. You need to go home. You need to figure out if this is something you want or not. And eventually they'll get bored and move on to someone else, right? And the really interesting thing with one of the articles I read is there's more sympathy with stranger stalking, as in you didn't know the perpetrator, than with intimate partner violence or a family member or a friend. Because again, it's justified a way as they want you, they're going to pursue you. This is a good thing, it's not harmful. You can say no, eventually they're going to stop. But as you and I both know, it doesn't always stop. No, it certainly doesn't. And when you bring up law enforcement, I've found as a private investigator, a lot of times law enforcement's view of a situation can very much be skewed by whoever gets to them first. 
Absolutely. So if the perpetrator is the one that races to them to tell their story, they tend to look at the victim as you're being overdramatic, you're exaggerating, it's not that bad. I think when victims hang back and they say, oh, I don't want to tell anybody, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, that can play against you in the long run. Absolutely. And you're right. It's it's just amazing how there's just this long game that's already at play when this stuff begins. And for victims, I do think there's some gaslighting that's going on within themselves as well as what they might meet with other people, right? Law enforcement or a friend or family member, again, Are they just trying to win you back or, you know, is this really this big of a deal? Are you thinking too much into it? And I don't think that they're meaning to be harmful with those comments, but I do think it's gaslighting the person's experience when these alarm bells are going off. Like, I don't feel that safe. We need to take that more seriously as friends, family members, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, that if someone truly isn't feeling safe and they're not normally talking about that, we need to listen. That's so huge. I could put that, I think, in every podcast episode that I do. We need to listen. Instead of saying, but he seems so nice. Well, I'd love to get roses every single day. But you're right. If you understand that that is love bombing or gaslighting, if if you understand that that's what's going on, don't let somebody talk you out of what you know to be true because you're the one that knows all the details of the situation, not the person who is maybe speaking into it. Like you said, trying to be helpful, not realizing how exceptionally unhelpful they're actually being. And you brought up a good point, too, of like, are we denying that this is actually happening to someone we love? Is that the safer place to sit rather than accepting this could be a dangerous situation? So let's think about what are some positive things that we can say? Because if you, I mean, listening, obviously the most important, but if you just listen and never actually say anything, (laughs) that's, that's not so helpful either. But what can we say where we can be supportive, we can be encouraging, or we can speak truth that maybe that victim's not seeing? Because like you kind of hinted at, they might be gaslighting themselves a little bit. Yeah, I think, again, just knowing those healthy boundaries. Like if you're receiving a dozen roses on your car every day, nine times out of ten, a family member is going to make that joke, right? Well, so-and-so that I marry never buys me flowers, and you're getting them every day. But looking deeper at if that's an unwanted advance, and this person has made it known, they don't want a dozen roses on their car every day. In fact, the more roses that are coming, the less safe that they're feeling There's this invasion of privacy with you can't go anywhere that I don't know where you are. It's just a thief of that peace of mind, that almost anonymity of I can go to the grocery store, I can go to school, I can go fill up my car with gas and not have to worry that I'm being watched or studied, you know, in my day-to-day life. I think, again, just being there for the person, offering to help, whatever that help may look like. If you want them to spend the night at your house, you can help them feel safe. Do they need to get a pet, something that can help them feel safe and protected? Do you need to help them to go talk to the authorities? What does that look like for everyone? It can be so different. But I would say the biggest thing is just helping them feel safe and supported. I can't imagine how confusing that would be. I think the biggest thing, too, is it steals the victim's peace. They don't feel like they get to go in the day-to-day and do whatever it is that they need to do 
someone's always watching or that perception that someone may always be watching, even if they're not in that moment. I think something else that any of us can do, just Google what the laws surrounding stalking in the state that you're in actually are. Victims, a lot of times, they're under so much stress, it doesn't even occur to them to do that. They yeah. think, oh, well, th that person, that's, that's not a criminal act. But a lot of states have really done a good job of expanding their statutes to include unwanted attention, like you're saying. You've made it clear, I don't want you to send me roses every day. I don't want you to text me every day. I don't want you to call me. When you've let them know that, and they are still doing it, in a lot of jurisdictions, that raises it up to the level of a crime. Once you've announced that you don't want any contact with them, don't have any contact with them, don't answer their calls, and go to the authorities. And that can be scary. And so our loved ones, can, like you said, go with us. Be that person who is just there to do whatever's asked of them. Just go with them and be that support person. Yeah. And I think that's such a great point in a lot of areas of life. I know with grief and loss, as a therapist, so many clients come in and they're like, no one knows what to say. And I'm like, what can be said? Nothing that's said is going to bring your loved one back. And I view it very similarly in this situation. You can't say anything that's going to make it okay or better, except I love you and I'm here for you. We don't have to worry about saying the perfect thing or doing the perfect thing as much as we just want to be there for that person in their experience and let them know they're not alone. In our book this week, we had a pretty famous case. I think a lot of people will have heard of the murder of actress Rebecca Schaefer by Robert Bardo. This was not like a one-off thing. He didn't suddenly wake up one day. He'd had zero problems in his life before right. and he starts stalking a celebrity. He had sent letters, even back in middle school, to teachers threatening suicide, threatening to kill them. And these are obviously huge red flags, very concerning behaviors. But his parents said, well, there's nothing wrong with him. He doesn't need any therapy. He doesn't need any help. Had he gotten some therapy, and correct me if I'm wrong, the younger you start these, when you first start seeing concerning behaviors, the better chance of a good outcome you would have. Yeah, absolutely. With a case like that, I do think that early intervention would be huge. And I think from a clinical perspective as a therapist, I often call therapists like little hunting dogs, like our noses are looking and trying to focus on these foundational issues. I'd be really curious what experiences he had had as a child. That sounds like his parents had a lot of denial. Uh, was there emotional attunement in his home? Are we looking at underdeveloped empathic roots in the brain? I think just that early intervention would have been able to be huge for him, just for somebody else to say, I have major concerns that this person is going to harm another human being in his lifetime. If the parents are in denial, then somebody else needed to step in. Yeah. You know, somebody else in the school system, somebody else in the family, someone else that knew the family maybe. And I think this is why mentoring young people is such a big deal, whether you're doing it, you know, as a youth group leader, a sports coach, scouting, whatever it is. But if you really want to make a difference in kids' lives, just having someone that shows up consistently that they feel safe with to be able to tell you things so that you can get people the help that they need, because there's so much going on in families that look perfectly normal. Absolutely. Where they really need a lot of help. 
So I, I know you've got confidentiality issues, but, you know, can you share with us something where you've seen a family that just looked all American, apple pie, perfect, church going, everybody loved these people. And yet if someone had maybe stepped in and said, let's look behind the facade, they might've had better outcomes if someone had stepped in, had spoken up. I do work with, with families that I think had they not been in my office doing an intake knowing what's going on, you would never know. And I think that's part of the problem is that looks are deceiving. We hear that all the time, yet we look at people and we're like, gosh, they really have it all together. I'm guilty of that comparison game too. But I think recognizing every family, every person, we all have our stuff. I think it's more detrimental when people won't admit that they have their stuff, right? <laughs> Maybe that's more of a warning sign than someone being able to admit, I'm struggling. As a therapist, you have to have your judgmental blinders down. You've got to worry about those preconceived notions before your client has even sat down in your office. And we fight those just like human beings because that's what we are. I think there's a perception that as a therapist, I'm perfect and I can give great advice. And I, I ruin a lot of people's days when I'm like, I don't give advice. I'm here to help you work through decisions and understanding what you've been through for you to be able to make sound decisions that you're okay with. And again, honoring boundaries and things like that. So yeah, I have to fight those notions just like everyone else with someone in my office. And I've been really shocked sometimes with what people are going through. I remember when I worked in a domestic violence court as a paralegal mm. and uh, doing some intake with some people and trying not to look shocked when I heard stories right. that I was like, nobody trained me for this. <laughs> now what do I do? Not that we should be trying to play amateur therapist, mm -hmm. but like you were saying, it's not about telling people what to do. It's about helping them work through things themselves. I think a lot of times talking with people, maybe our job is to help them realize on their own how beneficial talking to a professional might be. It's like you said, what you're so focused on in your research and your eventual dissertation is let's get at the root of the problem and, and stop mopping up after everything fell apart. So besides listening and being that support person, give us just one or two just quick little ideas that are super easy that anybody can do where we can make a difference in somebody's life, whether they're on the end of being stalked or if we see somebody in our lives that is maybe showing a little unhealthy behavior toward a love interest of theirs. Yeah. It's really hard to know how to help a stalking victim aside from what we've already talked about, right? Just being there, trying to advocate. And I think honestly, as a society, I'm gonna focus more on the perpetrator. We have got to start holding people accountable before it hits the point where a life has been lost or a life has been ruined. Someone who's a victim can still be alive and have a terrible outcome that may make them wish things had been different, you know, at the end, unfortunately. If you notice you've got a friend that's like pestering someone, like I just have to be able to find a way to break through to this guy or this girl and I know if they give me a chance. Encouraging that person, take a step back, take a breath, you know, let's focus on the facts of the situation. This person has told you multiple times to back off, they're not interested. You can't make this happen. 
and encouraging them, I think, as well as I would a victim to seek out therapy and try to get to the root of where some of this is coming from. Some of the research that I've read too on perpetrators, and there's very little out there, but it is out there, which I'm happy about, talk about how like narcissistic personality disorder and some other personality disorders are at the root of a lot of perpetrators. As clinicians, that's one of the hardest things to work through with someone because it's a very deep-seated, sometimes there's attachment trauma, sometimes there's heavy trauma on top of attachment trauma. And we're talking years of therapy to try to help someone work through to be a healthier version of themselves. It's not all rainbows and butterflies about the outcome in working with perpetrators. And I think part of my goal in my work is to continue to work toward even after I have my doctorate in working hopefully at some point with actual perpetrators to be able to get more of a glimpse, not just what's on paper, but by the person in front of me to be able to understand the humanity behind the perpetrator as well and be able to get to know hopefully how we can help them. I do think they're in pain. I do think they struggle with rejection. It doesn't excuse what they're doing to someone else, but they are in pain. They just think they can fix it by steamrolling another human being's will. I love what I'm hearing you say that there's got to be accountability with compassion. Mm-hmm. I think that's my big takeaway from uh, from talking with you today. And I think it's just it's a great reminder with stalkers and with, with really any kind of antisocial behavior. We've got to hold people accountable, but we've got to be compassionate. I love talking with therapists because you're all so soothing and it just makes me feel so good. I'm going to have a great day now. Yeah, I love listening to David's episode. I feel like he delineated therapy with pastoral counseling so well. Yes. So yeah, I appreciate the work that you do. Um, I'm a fan now. So thank you so much. (laughs) If people who are listening would like to connect with you, what would be a good way for them to do that? Sure. It's just Kara, my first name, at lovingcc.com, cc as in cat cat. That is my work email. I check it regularly. So if anyone had any questions or anything like that, that's how they could reach me. Awesome. Well, I will put that in the show notes. And Kara, thank you again for giving us your unique perspective on an issue where I think all of us can step up and help our communities be safer. And you've given us ways to do that. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. Oh, me too. Bye-bye. Our Bible passage this week is 1 Peter 5.8, and this is from the New Living Translation. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. I bet you've never stopped to think about what Satan might have in common with stalkers. I never really had either. But I want us to dive a little deeper into this passage. The devil is described as our great enemy. And can you even imagine a greater enemy than a stalker who seems to know your every move, who watches you in secret and harasses you with constant attention that you don't want? Aren't they prowling around, seeking prey to greedily gobble up? Both of these enemies seek to control you. And if that fails, they would just as soon see you dead. I hope that in today's episode, you learned some red flags to look out for and some best practices to protect yourself from someone who wants to draw you in with false promises, but in the end is only concerned about themselves. Let me know what you think about the episode. Send me an email at lori at theunlovelytruth.com or message me on social media. I love it when people are willing to have those hard, 
impactful conversations. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.